how's it going, y'all? I'm Scott Horton. This is my show. Sort of. This is my questions and answers show. Mostly what I do is I interview journalists about the wars. But uh, some of you guys just like listening to me talk so much that, well, what the hell, I figure what I should do is a Q&A show for you here. So if you go to scotthorton.org slash interviews, you get the interviews. You go to scotthorton.org slash show, and uh, you get this, the Q&A show, where I go through and try to answer your questions as fast and as best as I can, sometimes sacrificing speed for detail or detail for speed. But anyway, you know. Uh, so follow me on Twitter, at Scott Horton Show. Ask me your questions. Um, what you do, you can at me, but you can also just do hashtag SHSQA. Hashtag SHSQA. And then uh, I'll see them all that way. Now I have a lot of questions. I'm going to have to skip a couple of them, but you'll understand. Uh, I have a lot to get to here. Um, so, yeah, guess I'll get right to it. First of all, it's the 24th of April, 2017. Okay, um, so the first thing is I want to thank, uh, the comic Dave Smith for having me on his show. Actually, he was here in town. He came over here, but he interviewed me. And so that was kind of fun. I guess I should have stopped him and interviewed him for a while. Maybe I'll interview him next time. Anyway, so that was cool. He's a very good guy. We sat here and, you know, just hung out and talked for a while before we did the interview. And I like that guy, man. And um, he's going to be there, too, when we do the cruise. The uh, Tom Woods, Bob Murphy, Contra Krugman, Contra Krugman, Contra Cruise. Tom Woods, Bob Murphy, and I'm going to be there. And then so's the comic Dave Smith and a lot of people. So, man, if there's any way you could... Uh, Get your vacation time in October. Start making those reservations. ContraCruise.com So that should be fun, right? So anyway, thanks again to Dave for having me on there. That was cool. Apparently it's about to post here in a little while. Uh, it will have posted by the time any of y'all hear this, I guess. Okay. So first question. Why Philip Drew? Someone said to me, Hey, I noticed that your earlier archives... Great stuff, man. What a treasure trove. All this uh, great stuff going way, way back. Ancient History Now, 2003, the Philip Drew interviews. Why Philip Drew? And of course, the first answer is Google, man, Google. So, but maybe you Googled it, but you still don't know like exactly what's the gimmick there. So, the, the real answer is um, I had to have a fake name because it was a pirate radio station. Chaos Radio was a pirate radio station. And the rules, at least at first, were everybody has to have a fake name. So my first show on Chaos was called The Way uh, S-Word Is The Best I Can Tell. I'm trying to keep this show family friendly. But that was the name of it, The Way Is The Best I Can Tell. Now I have to edit that. Uh, and so, uh, and I was Colonel Edward Mandel House then. And then when I decided to change it to do the interview show, um, right around the time of the fall of Baghdad, right at the real start of the Iraq War, I started doing the interview show. And then I changed it to uh, Philip Drew, which is Colonel House's book. And the joke, to keep a long story short, is that if you, if you look at Woodrow Wilson, he's the prototypical 
progressive liberal do-gooder president, you know, the model for FDR and OBJ and all do-gooderism since then, Obama even. And, but Colonel House, who was Colonel House? Colonel House was Wilson's handler. Colonel House was the man who basically owned his ass on behalf of J.P. Morgan. And he was a Texas political fixer. Um, and they called him Colonel. It was a honorary thing. He wasn't ever actually a colonel in anything. But they called him Colonel House. And uh, he was like special advisor to the president. Uh, no official cabinet position or anything like that. But Wilson said, his views and mine are one. He is my independent self, my alter ego, and all of this just over-the-top kind of thing. Nixon and Kissinger only with Nixon as a babe, you know. Uh, well, not to acquit Wilson. He was a bastard, but he was just, he was naive compared to what he was up against, you know. is basically, this is what I should have said all along. House was Wilson's Cheney. When Cheney was to Bush, that was House to Wilson. Anyway, here's the punchline. Scott Horton gets to the punchline. The punchline is that House wrote a book called Philip Drew Administrator about how wouldn't it be great if he was the fascist dictator of America who overthrew the Constitution and created a one-man dictatorship in order that he could set everything right. And it's a plan for fascism. As House later complained, I anticipated Mussolini by several years. Back when Mussolini was still popular before he became America's official enemy. And people were saying, oh, isn't that the, the newest thing? All inside the state. Nothing outside it. Wow, that's great. You know, they loved it. And so that's the joke. Is that you already knew that the right-wingers were fascists. But the punchline is that the left-wingers are too. The liberals are too. And progressivism and the force for big government has always been at least okay with the right. It's not the opposite of conservatism. It is just a useful subset of conservatism. How do the big conservative owners of capital and property get everyone who's not to go along with their system and their game. Well, you train them to think that taxation and regulation and statism and a mixed quasi-free market economy is the solution to what ails them. When in fact, of course, that's the plan of the man all along. So uh, that's, you know, it's really kind of a clue as to how socialism was so successful in the 20th century is the conservatives are for it. You guys want a pension program or whatever? That's fine. As long as that means that you'll allow us to legalize all our cartel systems. Read Rothbard, man. That's what I always say. Left and right, the prospects for liberty. He talks all about this kind of thing. Um, and so that's the trip in, in Philip Drew. If you read Philip Drew, it's a liberal Democrat's dream of creating a right-wing fascist dictatorship. So where does that leave us? I guess that means that we're either got to choose between being communists or being individualists. And true laissez-faire, free marketeer, individual property ownership types. Since the entire center left and right are the captives of the special interests and have been, you know, all this time. 
So that's the joke. Anyway, I don't know if anybody got it. I'm sure that was the worst job I ever did telling it. But there you go. Uh, when is the book going to be done, Scott Horton? Soon. Well, I was told by a friend that, no, man, this is not done. Put it back in the oven. Have some other editor go back over it again. My other editor, he ran out of time and had to go and couldn't edit it anymore. Uh, so I got a new editor. By the way, some people said, hey, man, I'll chip in if you need an editor. Go ahead and chip in. Because I had to hire an editor. We're going through the thing one more time, and then I'm hitting publish on it because I can't stand it no more. But it's almost done. A friend actually asked me, hey, what's up with that book? I think he was suspicious. Like, what is this, the Horton Long Con or something? No, I swear to God, it's coming out. One of the things I'm waiting for, while I'm, while I'm going through the one last edit, I sent it out to you know my 50 best people from interviewing them on this show to hope and see if I could get you know a review or a blurb from them. So I already have gotten a couple of back. A couple of them back. I'm hoping to get some more before I publish it, too. But anyway, I guess we'll see how that goes. It's not like I ever promoted their work or anything, right? Anyway, we'll see. Um, yeah. Oh, and then someone asked me, hey, man, what's up with that YouTube channel project? You know, I kind of feel really bad about this because it was a bait and switch, although it was a good one and it wasn't intentional. But I did a Kickstarter. I raised money for the YouTube project. And then the server went to hell so bad, both of them, whatever it was, I had to get new servers. They were down for weeks. And people were, you know, trying to kill me because I wasn't putting out radio shows because my server was broken. That's an exaggeration. Um, so this is the only money I had to do it. So I went ahead and did it. I talked to the people. I talked to, like, the handful of people who had donated the most under the Kickstarter, and they said it was cool. In fact, I think I sent out an email to everybody who had donated the Kickstarter, and no one said no. And I got a few yeses back. So I was like, all right. So I got the new servers. And then part of that deal was I had a brand new volunteer and he was going to do the YouTube project. But then that never happened. So it's now, I admit, it's years into this. You know, I've been doing this this whole time. I should have had, you know, YouTube. I could have made a million dollars by now probably on YouTube ads if I've been posting my interviews on YouTube all these years since YouTube has been out. So now I'm too late. I already missed the boat on all that anyway. But uh, at least I'll have the archives up there. Um, and I'm paying a guy to do it. And it's a guy that I know. He's an old friend of mine, and I know he's good at this stuff. And he's already making progress on getting everything set up to do it and whatever. So that is actually you know, happening today. I just talked to the guy for an hour on the phone about all which, what all goes in which folder and we got to get the HTTPS certificate going and whatever the hell his steps he needs to check off to get all this to work right. So it's happening. The YouTube project, especially for those of you who donated to that thing, I'm real sorry about that. It totally sucks the way that happened. Not quite fraud, but it was pretty bad. So anyway, um, so yeah, man, I'll try to take care of that for you. Uh, soon. All right, then somebody asked me about Rojava. What's the deal with Rojava? Well, Rojava is what they call now autonomous Syrian Kurdistan in the north of the country there. And in the midst of the war, the Syrian government in Damascus doesn't have time for a fight with the Kurds. And basically, they've taken the stand that they don't want to see Assad fall. His enemies, the jihadists, are their enemies too. And that goes for the Al-Qaeda guys and the ISIS guys. And so right now, the Syrian, so-called Syrian Democratic Forces is really just the Kurdish YPG 
um, which is the Syrian branch of the Turkish PKK, somewhat communist, sort of former communist, uh, bookchinist uh, group. It's call it what it is. It's communism, but it's, it didn't like you know Soviet Stalinist you know gulag totalitarianism. But um, not that its economics make much sense. But the thing of it is that uh, they are surrounded by enemies, so I don't know what's going to happen to them. I mean, right now they're being used by the Americans to fight the Islamic State. But the Americans are only grudgingly doing that. They would rather have the Islamic State there to serve as a check against Iran. Read it in the New York Times. You know, Tom Friedman explaining exactly. But the Islamic State blew back so bad in their face, they had to go ahead and fight the Islamic State. But they'll tolerate al-Nusra which is worse since they're sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City. But anyway, they don't mind. The Americans don't mind. CIA doesn't mind. And so they're using these Kurds now, but are they going to turn around and stab them in the back and let the Turkish army invade and crush them as soon as the Islamic State is defeated? Maybe. If America decides that they're going to continue to back them and they declare independence from Damascus, is America going to take their side in a war with Damascus? I guess that would be convenient. Another backdoor to war to get rid of Assad that way. Seems like they would probably rather negotiate a deal. I'm not saying that's the first conflict on the menu, but there are a few. And what you have to understand about the Turks is that the PKK... um, you know, group, militant group. I don't know exactly how violent they are these days, but they are certainly considered the enemy of the state by the Turkish government there, which is getting more and more totalitarian all the time, especially one big step last week of consolidation of power by the president there, who's really turning the country from a secular European-type state to an, an Islamist state, trying to recreate the Ottoman Empire is what I think he's really up to there. And um, and so, you know, I'm not exactly sure what the guy's question was about Rojava. There's a lot of, uh, you know, propaganda about how, oh, it's all paradise and caring and sharing and anarcho-communism works now and this kind of thing. Which, you know what? If they had peace and security, it'd be nice to see them give it a shot. I mean, doesn't seem like American communes ever turn out very well, but, you know, they could try it. They want to have a commune. Um, but I assume that Donald Trump is going to destroy them after, you know, or, you know, turn a blind eye as Turkey destroys them as soon as they're done being used to fight the Islamic State, rouse the Islamic State out of uh, the city of Raqqa in eastern Syria for us. So, I mean, that's the problem with being useful to the United States. It just means that you've moved up to the top of the list to be killed next. So... You know, good luck to the Syrian Kurds, man. Um, all right, uh, Syrian nukes 06. Somebody sent me an article by, was it Brett Stevens? Some idiot in uh, the Weekly Standard saying, oh, man, you think Assad's chemical weapon hoax is bad. He doesn't call it that. You think Assad's uh, chemical weapons thing is bad now. Just think if he had nuclear weapons like he was trying to make back in 2006 when Israel bombed him. But you know what? 
All you got to do is just ask yourself for one second, how come Bush didn't bomb the thing? And the reason Bush didn't bomb it is because it wasn't a nuclear reactor. They were trying to pretend it was. Not the Syrians were. The Israelis were. And the American hawks were. But it wasn't a nuclear reactor. Bush would have bombed it if it was really a nuclear reactor, really part of some completely secret, illicit nuclear weapons program. But does that make sense to you at all, that the Syrians could try to come up with their own Manhattan Project in the middle of broad daylight and every satellite in the world and God and everybody? Right, no, of course not. Just like the lies about Saddam Hussein in the aluminum tubes. Well, what is it that you're implying he might be able to one day do if he began to try with these aluminum tubes, man? You need tens of thousands of them working perfectly to spit out a little bit of enriched uranium at a time. If you're talking about weapons, bombs worth of weapons-grade uranium, Saddam can't do that in secret, man. And neither can Assad. And that's why whatever it was that they bombed there, and it's, here's the dispute, is whether it was a radar station or whether it was some kind of uh, storage facility for missiles, it was not a nuclear reactor. It just wasn't. And my wife, if you search, just type in Syria nuclear 2006, if you want, add rawstory.com. They used to do journalism. I know it's nothing but a rag of garbage now mostly, but they used to do journalism. And, um... If you just type in Larissa Syria nuclear, it'll come up and you'll find there's about four articles and she had IAEA sources. She had CIA sources and they were saying this is totally bogus. There was no nuclear reactor. There was no nuclear nothing when they went and inspected it. It was just another hoax. But, you know, hey, fake news, man. By definition, the weekly standard, and it's really the wrong term, right? It's not like the National Report parody news, but it ought to be considered as such. Really what it is is just lies. The weekly standard, Stephen Hayes, that's who it was that wrote this. He's the same guy that pushed the Saddam Osama link. You can find Dick Cheney going, well, you know, there's this thing in the weekly standard about Saddam and Osama. Yeah, he got all that from a bunch of liars in Cheney's office. Nice. That is complete nonsense and completely refuted by the CIA, who just said that, no, Saddam and Osama don't work together. In fact, they're enemies. Everybody knows that, except people who believe liars. Same kind of thing here. And again, just think about it on the face of it. How come the Israelis did it? How come Bush said no? And you go back and check the reporting. Bush was asked. It's not like the Israelis just surprised the Americans with this. They asked America to do it. And Bush said no. Because it wasn't real. I don't know if anybody ever really reported whether the Israelis were just being worst case scenario paranoids or whether they were outright lying and had an ulterior motive to disrupt one thing or another or what. It could have been you know, right around that time was when at least one part of the Israeli government, the Ehud Olmert government, was trying to negotiate with the Syrians. And the Americans were trying to stop them. 
So it could be that it was a faction within the Israeli government that did that to undermine uh, peace negotiations. Someone ought to confront Condoleezza Rice about that now. Hey, what about when the Israelis were actually trying to make peace with Syria and then you stopped them? Anyway. Um, but yeah, so the answer to your question is that story's a lie. Stephen Hayes is a liar. The Weekly Standard is a rag of nonsense and lies and Israeli propaganda. And my wife debunked that crap herself. And then I think probably Seymour Hirsch and some others followed up too. But I can just ask the wife, hey, was that true? No. She can report to me that that is not true. Thank you. Good. Okay. And I'm just telling you what I know. All right. Um, the Iran deal. Hey, Scott Horton, what is up with the Iran deal's opponents and their motivations? I was asked on Twitter, hashtag SHSQA. So first of all, what's the Iran deal and all of that in the first place? So the background is Iran is a sovereign nation and they can do things. One of the things that they decided to do back in 1969 or 70, I forgot, was they signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Now, if you're a nuclear weapons state like America or China and you sign the Non-Proliferation Treaty, then you promise not to sell nuclear weapons to anybody else or to give nuclear weapons to anybody else or to give nuclear weapons technology to any other state. That's the promise. Oh, yeah, and also, wink, wink, yeah, right, one day we'll get rid of our nukes, but not on any specific timetable detailed here. Okay. Now, for a non-nuclear weapons state like Iran... They promise not to try to get nukes, not to make them and not to try to buy them by hook, by crook, by smuggling, by nothing. Did, are they supposed to get nuclear weapons either? That's their promise. They're a sovereign state. It's a treaty. They signed it. They're obligated under that treaty to not make nuclear weapons. They're also obligated under that treaty to have a safeguards agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency. And that's a contract that allows the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, to inspect. They're basically the global ATF, and they get to go around there. They're, they're nuclear scientists, and they go around, and they make sure that all nuclear material in whatever member state with a safeguards agreement is accounted for, and that they verify then whether that nuclear material has been diverted to any military purpose or whether it's still just sitting there where it's supposed to be for use in an electricity program or if we're talking about a university experimental program or whatever it is, that it's accounted for and it's being used for civilian purposes. So, in other words, Iran already had a deal. Furthermore, they weren't in violation of it. Iran had a deal and they were completely abiding by it. And that deal absolutely verified, quote, continued to verify the non-diversion of declared nuclear material in Iran to any military or other special purpose. That's what they said over and over and over again. So, in other words, there's no need to even have a nuclear deal with Iran, the 2015 uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. It's completely unnecessary and superfluous. So why do they do it? Well, why they did it is because the fake, false, alleged threat of an Iranian nuclear weapons program was being used as, you know, a, a possible basis 
to for you know Israel or Hawks in America to start a war with Iran. And it didn't matter that the IAEA continued to verify the non-diversion of nuclear material material in Iran to any military purpose. Uh, all that mattered was that a bunch of liars kept lying about it all the time. Nuclear threat this, nuclear threat that. Now, 99% of whatever you ever heard about this was just complete lies. Just, you know, the top of the hour news on the AM radio for decades, every day. Iran nuclear scary threat. You'd think they'd have a giant arsenal of H-bombs by now. But the thing is, they never really were making nukes at all. Now, if you ask a hawk who is a detailed hawk in the non-proliferation community or whatever, he did have a real argument, but it was a fake-ass argument, but it was actually structured with reason. It wasn't just pure you know, innuendo and propaganda. And that argument was that the Iranians had enough low-enriched uranium, electricity-grade uranium, that it would be enough that if they continued to refine it up to weapons grade, it would be enough for one bomb. And that they could do that within a year. And that was known as their breakout capability. Now, their ability to actually have enough weapons-grade uranium for one bomb and their ability to actually make and finish a device is an entirely different question. They like to conflate those two uh, questions together, a finished product versus just enough uranium, a weapons-grade uranium to do it. But anyway, so the theoretical threat was they have a stockpile large enough that you could make one nuke out of it if you spent a year enriching it up to weapons-grade. And they said, well, that red line is just too dangerous, that breakout capability. So that was the basis of the agreement. You got the entire U.N. Security Council negotiating the deal uh, with the Iranians, uh, all the members, all the winners of World War II, basically, right? Um, and what they promised to do then was to reduce their nuclear material stockpile to such a low amount as to increase their breakout capability uh, or the, the time on their breakout capability to over a year. And it was already a year uh, in the first place. So I forgot what the standard is now. More than one. Um, but anyway, they had to, and they did, they reduced their ability uh, they reduced their stockpile of low-enriched uranium. Then they closed their secondary enrichment facility at COM, the Fordo facility near COM. And um, so they turned that just into a research facility. It's not pumping out any uranium at all. And those are later generation, faster, better centrifuges there. So that's all shut down. Then they took what was... I think, what, 25 or 30,000 spinning centrifuges at their Natanz facility, and they reduced that down to 5,000. So now it's only producing a very small amount of uranium, just enough to be constantly used and to keep the, um, you know, to keep the amount below the limit. And then they also agreed to pour a bunch of concrete into the uh, center reactor at the a rock reactor, which could have made uh, weapons-grade plutonium as waste, even though they never had a reprocessing facility 
uh, and it would be absolutely impossible for them to even harvest the waste out of that uh, nuclear plant without everyone in the world knowing. They'd have to shut it down for at least half a year to let everything cool off and take the lid off the whole thing to get the waste out of there. Whenever that does happen, I mean, it's a light water reactor, but if they were ever doing that, it would have been the Russians taking all this stuff out anyway. Um, so... Oh, and then they expanded their inspection. So now the IAEA can not only go to places where there's nuclear material, but now they can go just to the original mines. They can go to the factories that make the centrifuges. They can go to military bases where the Israelis or the Mujahideen Kalk have ever made up ridiculous lies about suspected uh, nuclear development sites in their country and all these things. They, they've opened their books way open, even wider than before. Now they have an additional protocol to their safeguards agreement. Now they have subsidiary arrangements to their safeguards agreement. Now it's like the ATF moving into your gun shop. And I know that's a bad example because of Fast and Furious. Um, but in this case, I mean the proverbial ATF that Americans believe in. It would be like having an actual federal gun cop work all day, every day at the gun shop, making sure that everything is on the up and up. No black market dealing here. No full auto triggers without paying the full $200 tax here, that kind of thing, right? That's exactly what it is. So now why would anybody oppose that? Because they want a war. Why would anybody oppose that? Because that is taking the argument that Iran is a nuclear threat and it's murdering that argument to death. And it's saying, in practice, in effect, shut up, lying neocons. We know. We already knew. Now we double extra super lucky happy wish. No, for sure, forever. They are not making nuclear weapons. You can't tell that lie anymore. The fact that they were able to, after the CIA officially debunked this in 2007, <laughs> it's kind of a miracle. You know, I don't know. They do, though. But, um, so that's the fact. Um, it's a great deal. Uh, all they got is their own money back that America had stolen from them on an old weapons deal before they overthrew America's sock puppet fascist dictatorship that um, like Eisenhower installed back in 1953 when they overthrew it in 79. So it was only their money. They didn't get U.S. taxpayer money. And if you're saying, that, well, that's stupid. We should have kept that money and this and that and whatever. Well, like I say, you didn't even need a new deal. You already had a deal. The only reason Obama did this was just to head off the Hawks, was just to deflate the war propaganda of Netanyahu, McCain, and Graham. And just to finally say, look, we already know that that's not true, but now look how well we know it. Now we have this entire new deal, and we have... Russia and China and France and Britain are all on board and sign the whole thing with them too. P5 plus one means Germany as well. A non-permanent member of the UN Security Council, but or maybe permanent, but not like the other five because they're the losers of World War II, so that's different. Anyway, so that's the answer to the Iran deal. Now you know all about it. And, um, uh, and, and who are these people? It's the Israelis. The Israelis hate Iran because Iran backs Hezbollah. 
And the Israelis hate Iran because they need a foreign enemy, just like every government needs a foreign enemy. And Iran makes a good one, especially when they had a jackass like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in there running things and, you know, making insane pronouncements uh, to the camera and all that, helping to demonize his own country. Um, and so that's it's all about Israel and their lobby in this country. Oh, man, and now there's a guy mowing the lawn. I hope it's not coming through the mic too bad back there, out there. Seems like my noise floor is pretty high. But anyway, we'll see. What, you know, I'll try to continue on. Okay, next question was somebody sent me another Prager University propaganda piece. We really need uh, to actually do a good job producing things, countering those. Um, and there was another one about climate change a guy sent me. Both of these I'm going to put off until next time. Um, the Prager thing, maybe that one will have to stand on its own. If you want, I'm sure uh, it's a safe bet that the guy who um, the guy who asked me this question has seen my previous answer. But on my old radio show, I did a debunking of a previous Prager University thing about Israel. And I think if you watch that, as clunky as it is, because I wasn't working off a script. I was just talking on my show. They have this whole production and script and flash animation and all their crap. But um, if you watch that, I think you'll see the blatant dishonesty of their entire position, which is that, well, how come Israel can't just have all this land? How come the Palestinians can't all just die or vanish or go live in Iraq or somewhere where they're not from? Why can't we just steal all their property? You must be an anti-Semite. And that's their basic thrust of their argument is that, of course, by default, all of this land belongs to Israel. The Palestinians can't have even the 22%. Now, the one that the guy sent me, I watched like the first five seconds of it, and it's like, you're always hearing people say, why don't you just let the Palestinians have the West Bank? Well, would you be surprised if I said, gee, we tried that before? Oh, God, just kill me now. Ugh, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I, what I'll have to do is I'll have to go through it take some notes, make sure I'm like ready, and then we'll go through it like the last one and debunk it, you know, step by step. Oh, what a headache. Uh, um, and then the climate change thing, man, I don't know. I, I mean, the real problem is, is I'm just not interested. Just don't care, really. You know, I don't know. The guy wrote me a long, thoughtful thing that had all these points and questions, and, you know, sorry, dude, I'll look at it, and I'll get to it next time. But that's just going to take too long this time to get into, I think. Um, somebody asked a real general, what's the deal with the DPRK, the North Koreans? Um, and the answer to the North Koreans thing is they just want a peace agreement. They just want a deal. America needs an enemy, and they need an enemy too, I guess. But the Americans really need an enemy. Divide and conquer. Keep the Japanese and the South Koreans dependent on us. Um keep lasting peace from breaking out, keep everything tenuous and divided so that we have the advantage, which I don't know that it really gives us the advantage at all, but that's the theory. And so instead of having a peace agreement at the end of the Korean War, we still just have a ceasefire. In 2017, a war that Ike Eisenhower negotiated an end to in 1952, or was it 54? And we've still got only a ceasefire. 
And the truth is that America could just give them a security guarantee, lift all the sanctions, open trade relations, send Dennis Rodman and the whole washed-up basketball stars team over there, and let's get along. And just kill them with kindness. There's nothing to fight about. The whole thing is completely stupid. And the only reason they have nuclear weapons is because of George Bush. I think I said this last time, but the Clinton government had a deal. They said, you stay within the non-proliferation treaty and we'll give you welfare. And then they never even did deliver the welfare, but the North Koreans stayed within the deal anyway. Well, that's sort of somewhat a little bit disputed that maybe they had the beginnings of a uranium enrichment program back then that they weren't supposed to have. But even then, still, let's negotiate. Instead... Oh, and by the way, there's no evidence they've ever made a single uranium bomb. That's the easiest kind of nuclear bomb to make, is a weapons-grade uranium gun-type nuke. And there's no evidence that they've ever even tried to set off one of those. They've always done plutonium bombs, at least the ones that it's provable what happened. They were um, from the isotopes in the air and this and that. They were plutonium implosion bombs. Um not uranium gun-type nukes at all. So if they had this uranium enrichment program ever since 2002, how come they haven't set off a single nuke? They had no reason to enrich to anything less than weapons grade the whole time. So I don't know. But under the excuse that they were enriching uranium outside the deal, Bush slapped new sanctions on him. He slapped harsh insults against the dictator Kim Jong-il and... Uh, he announced the Proliferation Security Initiative, which means we claim the completely extra-legal, illegal right to seize North Korean boats on the high seas. And I'm not sure. I think they even started seizing boats. And only then did the North Koreans announce we are going to leave the Non-Proliferation Treaty in six months, like in the deal. You have to announce. So they did. And then after six months, they withdrew. From the Non-Proliferation Treaty, they kicked the IAEA inspectors out of the country, and only then did they start making nuclear weapons. And that was all George Bush's fault. He picked a fight that he had no idea how to finish it. And all he did, he just pushed them to nuclear weapons. You know, if the Iranians had kind of a half a deterrent with their civilian nuclear program, that could one day conceivably become a weapons program if it came down to it. The North Koreans decided, we're making nukes, man. We're not waiting around. And they went for it. And then look at the example of what happened to Saddam and Gaddafi for not having nukes. Look at what's happened to Syria for not having nukes. So the North Koreans said, all right, we're doing this. Then, after they had only set off one nuke and it was a fizzle and it didn't even really work well, Chris Hill, the State Department flunky, Asked George Bush for permission. Bush let him go. He went over there and started working a deal. They stopped making nukes. They turned down or turned off their Pyongyang reactor. They were preparing to destroy it. And then Bush, part of the, our side was we took them off the terrorist list. Then Bush put them back on the terrorist list. As though North Korea supports terrorism. What? Because they have an ambassador to Syria and Syria supports Hezbollah or helps Iran. I mean, what are we even talking about here? North Korea doesn't have anything to do with terrorism. They kidnap starlets for, you know, the, the father did. The Kim Jong-il used to kidnap starlets. Is that the terrorism rap or we're just making up stuff here? Bush put him back on the terrorist list and then that was adding, you know, further insult. And going back on Christopher Hill's attempt to make peace. That just goes to show how attainable it was that 
George W. Bush's flunky almost was able to work out another deal with them in 08. It wasn't the North Koreans that screwed it up. It was George W. Bush himself that screwed it up again. And then, you know, of course, Barack Obama has basically done, you know, did nothing, has, this is post him, um, uh, did nothing, which was better than making things worse, which is what Trump seems to be doing now. But if you listen to uh, North Korea's uh, bluster, the worst thing they've said is they're threatening a preemptive strike, which is just mirroring the Americans. Uh, But really, if you listen to them, all they ever say is they'll defend themselves. And they're full of bluster. And you know what? You should read this article. Um, We're going to run it. Maybe we're running it at antiwar.com today. Or tomorrow we're going to run it at antiwar.com. And it's at War on the Rocks. And it's about how their doctrine is if anybody messes with you, hit back hard or else they won't believe that you will next time. And that's their doctrine and how that goes right up against the American doctrine for how to deal with the North Koreans, which is, you know, refuse to accommodate them in any way or see their side of anything at all and always threaten and always bluster and always basically do exactly the kind of thing that will get us into a war um, accidentally where no neither side wants one but our military men even has this thing where deterrence equals and they literally have the, like the math symbols deterrence equals did I already say all this what show did I say all this on maybe I was just talking to a friend deterrence equals ability Times, national interest, times, you know, whatever. This PowerPoint, ridiculous thinking on the part of these generals, where they write this stuff down as a substitute for thinking itself. So that when something happens, then they just look at the piece of paper. What are they supposed to do? And they end up screwing everything up. We'll go with the Scheifen plan. That's a foolproof thing. And then everybody dies. So, yeah, take a look at that. So, War on the Rocks. We're going to run it tomorrow on antiwar.com. Um, Crimea. A guy asked me, hey, man, you said nobody died when Russia seized the Crimean Peninsula in March of 2014. And I looked it up, and I found, it says here, that one guy died. But then I looked at it, and it was just a blog at The Guardian. So, I, hey, you know, I don't know, man. And then... This came up, it's a Wikipedia, which, yeah, I know, it's, I'm not saying that's a citation itself, I'm just describing the page I'm looking at, and the page is the 2014 Simferopol incident, and what's clear here is that nothing is clear. What's clear here is that the Ukrainian government says that one of their guys got shot. It's not clear to me that it's actually a certain fact that that happened, that the guy was shot and killed. So the answer to your question, writer, is that possibly one Ukrainian soldier was shot and killed, but it's not a proven fact as best I can tell from the sources linked here. And there's quite a few of them. Um but, you know, there's a lot of hawkish propaganda about Crimea and Ukraine, too. So I'd probably better trust something where they went back later. Something like a German newspaper going back later to look. Something like that, if we could find one. I don't know. All right. And then um, Balkans book. Uh, I've never read a book about the Balkans War. I was... I guess a junior, and I was paying attention to Iraq stuff then in high school. 
Um, I was paying attention to some Iraq stuff, but I was not paying attention to the Bosnia stuff. I just was like, man, I, I was like 16 or 17 or something. And uh, it was just too complicated for me. Now, Kosovo, I pay attention to that in 99. I can't say I've ever read a good book about it, but I have a book about both of them. That's by a guy named George Samuel Z. I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, but if you sound it out and type that in, George Samuel Z. And the book is called Bombs for Peace. And it comes very highly recommended. Um, Naboch Samalik, our friend Naboch Samalik, uh, Malich, uh, he said it's good. So if Naboch likes it, then I'm going to read it someday, damn it. That's my plan. So that's my cop-out answer. I don't really know, but try it. Tell you what, then review it and send your review to me. All right. So 45 minutes. I guess I really did have time to do the Prager thing, but I'll do that next time. Oh, Zionist propaganda. I got a cure for your Zionist propaganda. Check out the archives at libertarianinstitute.org, and very soon we'll be posting an interview I did today with Yakov Hirsch from MondoWeiss.net. And, uh, yeah, there's a perspective that I think you'll like. You may have heard his previous interviews. They were a little scattered and kind of, yeah, this one I think went pretty well. I think that you'll enjoy it. Uh, Yakov Hirsch, that's at LibertarianInstitute.org slash Scott Horton Show. It's not up there yet. It'll probably be up there tonight or tomorrow. And, um, cool, that's it. I'm starving, man. I'm out of here. Thanks, guys. Uh, check out my Patreon. If you like giving money to libertarians that you like, check out my Patreon. Check out um, the support page at scotthorton.org and especially at libertarianinstitute.org slash support. And I appreciate all that. And um, I promise, man, the book is almost done. It really, for those of you who care, it's coming soon. So thanks.